welcome back. This week is all about finishing out content before the big bad verbal exam. It's really not that scary and we'll spend all of next week getting you prepared for it. So stay tuned for that for next week. All right, so the content this week is all about how we elicit confessions from suspects and whether or not we can use them in court. So first things first, watch that Miranda versus Arizona video. This is a prime piece of educational material that really showcases that case and what it means for our criminal justice system. Okay, Let's at least go over the cliff notes of this case, though. So Ernesto Miranda was arrested and then questioned for his involvement in a kidnapping and rape. And after two hours of interrogation and without telling Mr. Miranda that he had a right to an attorney at questioning, the police obtained a written confession to the crime. The written confession was used at trial and the jury found Mr. Miranda guilty. After being upheld by the Supreme Court of Arizona, the case made its way to the Supreme Court of the United States, where in a five to four decision, the court reversed the logic of the lower courts and said, you know what? Law enforcement should have to tell people of their right to remain silent and their right to an attorney when they are one, in police custody and two, being interrogated. And that and statement is a big one, as both prongs have to be met in order for law enforcement to have to read these rights. And we'll come back to this. So back to the case rationale, the idea was that defendants needed to be aware of these rights so that they could knowingly and intelligently waive them only if they really understood them. And then evidence found by not telling people of these rights then couldn't be used in court. So this case is really a case of both Fifth and Sixth Amendment jurisprudence at work to determine that police have the burden to tell suspects about their rights against self-incrimination and a right to an attorney. And really, it was the first of its kind to do this. It's definitely a power to the people type of ruling out of the Supreme Court. And it was done because the court felt that the government had the upper hand here, as many people were unaware of their rights. And I can confirm this even with criminal justice college students, right? So going back, there are two main prongs to when Miranda, Miranda needs to be read. First is custody and second is interrogation. So you'll hear that term custodial interrogation frequently when we talk about this case. And this means that police only have to read Miranda if they have the suspect in custody, so like under arrest when they're not free to leave, and they are being interrogated by asking questions to further a criminal investigation. They can, however, ask for things like your name and your address without needing to read these rights. So back to the prompts. If one of these two doesn't apply, Miranda also doesn't apply. For example, if a police officer arrests someone but asks no incriminating questions and the person on their own volition starts confessing to the crime, those statements can be used in court. And on the flip side, if someone voluntarily speaks with law enforcement, thus they're not in custody, and then they confess to a crime, those statements can also be used. However, if a person is arrested, so they're in custody, and the officer asks incriminating questions to elicit a confession, those statements would not be allowed in court. So Miranda is huge for criminal evidence as it essentially dictates what type of confession can be used and how we can get it. And while the courts have time and time again said that confessions need to be voluntary and freely given, Miranda may have done very little to actually contribute to this. 
So historically, confessions were obtained through violence. Police literally beat confessions out of people. But that practice has been shown time and time again to be ineffective as people will admit to things they've never done in an effort to stop the beating. Um, so an example of trying to get confessions in times of war by use of violence is also highly ineffective for the same reason. However, we also question whether moving from violence to psychological manipulation is really all that much better. So make sure to watch the short read technique training videos included for the week. And I'm really bummed because there used to be a full training video, but it's been removed from the internet in the last few months. And unfortunately, we moved from violence to psychological manipulation as a way to elicit confessions, but we find that this also is a massive, massively flawed process. People are bound to tell us things that they never actually did when we pressure them into it, and when we blatantly lie to them about what we know, when we create false memories. Think back to a few weeks ago when we talked about the power of that. And when we continually keep badgering low educated and low IQ individuals as they simply think that telling us what we want to hear is going to stop the torment, which it definitely won't. And this is a huge ethical issue in our system as many of those that have been convicted to only later be found innocent have suffered from false confession issues. Of the cases worked on by the Innocence Project, nearly 25% of exonerations by DNA had issues with false confessions in the initial conviction. And that means that nearly one in four falsely confessed to something that they didn't do. And as much as many of us would like to think that we would never do such a thing, put in the wrong circumstance, we actually might. And remember, you are all educated individuals at this stage. Most of those who fall into this category are not. So look to the, Bre the videos about um, Brendan Dassey, right? The, he was included in the How to Make a Murder docuseries on Netflix. He was a juvenile, just 16 years old, when he confessed to rape and murder. And he had an IQ of 70. And there's been a lot of questions over whether or not that confession is valid. And then also look to the Central Park Five boys who were wrongfully convicted of the rape and murder of the Central Park jogger in the early 1990s. And most of them were in the age range of 14 to 16. And again, confessed to something that they did not do and has been proven by DNA-based evidence. So we don't have to look far for these problems in our system than to pop culture lately. Um, so pay attention to these flaws as they're being blatantly presented to you in mainstream society. All right, so next week is exam prep. Um, I hope you are as excited as I am to sit down and chat about what you know. So I, until then, y'all.